90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing good. Just getting ready to uh, leave for Arizona for some field work at the end of the week. So hoping <laughs> that, uh, yeah, I can actually fly out of here, I guess. I'm just going to show up and try. Yes. I mean, once again, we're just missing each other. I recently got back from Arizona, yeah. <laughs> uh, but did not have any trouble flying. But definitely will say to anybody that is, uh, be sure to thank your TSA officers because they are still not getting paid. Yes, exactly. Um, and so I'll let you on the plane. They'll let anybody on. <laughs> it's true. You know, I always have those boxes with wires. and Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got to check a whole bunch of stuff for camping in the middle of nowhere again. And of course, my luck, we're working in the middle of the Mojave Desert. It's supposed to rain all three days I'm going to be there. <laughs> Well, that'll be fun. Oh, sure. That's exactly what I want to be doing, <laughs> is being a wash system when there's, you know, rain. So hopefully it's not too bad. And uh, yeah, we'll see. Excellent. So you're taking the, the drill and everything out this time? I am. I'm going to try to drill. The sediments are fairly young. They're only 5 million years old, and so they're not really very consolidated. Um, so it's going to be a... It's going to be a guess whether we can do it, but I'm sure I will have complaints or triumphs about it uh, next week. <laughs> yeah, that'll be a challenge for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll look forward to it. Um, but that is, uh, <laughs> that's also the age of some of the rocks we're going to talk about today as a segue. <laughs> Very smooth. Mm -hmm. uh, You're welcome. So, so this is the last installment of our climate show. We finally got back to it after having a little uh, diversion there in the center. Yeah, yeah. a little climate hiatus. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I hopefully people remember we're doing climate show, but this is, this is the end, and this is also not the most exciting because there's tons of exciting things in the past, but definitely we have the most data about this. And so we're going to be talking about the Cenozoic, so from 65 million years ago to today. Right. And like you said, these are more recent, so we have a lot more rocks that we can actually get to right. to learn about this. Right, exactly. They haven't all been eroded or subducted or diagenetically altered. So, you know, buried for so long that they've become something else. Um, so, yeah, fresh rocks and a whole lot of them, right, compared to stuff that we looked at from the Paleozoic and definitely from the Proterozoic. So that's what we're going to talk about. Um, this will be more familiar to people probably. Um, but there's also some weird stuff that happens, so we'll get to that. But what happened at the beginning of the Cenozoic and the end of the Cretaceous that sort of marked the beginning of the Cenozoic? Something pretty big. Right. So we start cooling uh, ex to mark the beginning of the Cenozoic. Yes, exactly. Um so at the end of the Mesozoic, big asteroid hits, stuff starts to happen. <laughs> it actually um, causes a lot of cooling itself, but that's just on the, like, the sort of couple of year time frame. Um, and then we kill all the dinosaurs, right? <laughs> so right. <laughs> some big stuff happened. Um, and that extinction event occurred. We had a whole lot of volcanism going on, so it's still really warm at the end of the Cretaceous. Not as warm as it was in the middle. Uh, we probably have some high elevation ice going on, 
Um, but warm all over. And as we go into the Cenozoic, we start to cool off significantly, actually, which is kind of weird to say since everyone talks about global warming. But we're in right now what we would call an ice house climate. Right. And to give a little bit of geologic context, so this is the most recent, but millions of years still is tricky. Uh, (laughs) So by the time that this happened, the Rocky Mountains had already formed Mm -hmm. and the movie Ice Age was taking place. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) So this is really pretty recent. Right. Uh, And so we start this rapid cooling cycle. And like you said, we're still there. We still have ice over a significant portion of the earth. Exactly. But our climate's still changing pretty rapidly currently. Exactly. And so some of those nuances of what's happening right now um, are we can look back at rocks earlier in the Cenozoic. And like you said, millions of years, but still they're relatively fresh and there's a bunch of them. And we can try to make some analogs. I mean, we can't make analogs for humans because early mammals weren't driving around cars. But for some of the quickly changing rates, we can. So um, we will get to that. But why did we start to cool off in the first place? Um, Because we came out of this hot house during the Cretaceous. So if you remember several weeks ago, (laughs) hot house is when we have no ice on Earth. We don't have continental, large continental ice sheets and we don't have um, any sea ice, maybe you have some high elevation glaciers, but not very many. Um, And so the difference between that as we go into this thing called an ice house is that we have continental ice. So at the beginning of the Cenozoic, we don't have it yet, but we are rapidly cooling. And if you'll remember how we know that, it's those things called oxygen isotopes. Right. So these Dell insert isotope number O (laughs) ratios, (laughs) can be a pretty good indicator of what the mean global temperature was. Right. And so during the Cenozoic, we have a really good sort of, if you have, you can measure these oxygen isotopes. And here's what you need to remember about them. As they get heavier, so if you have heavier isotopes, you have colder climate. Because light oxygen isotopes like to go into ice. So if you have all the light oxygen isotopes in ice and you're looking at these little things that swim around in the ocean and they build shells that happen to have oxygen in them, those shells contain heavier um, oxygen isotopes. And so either you've got a lot of ice that's forming on land, so this continental ice, or you've got really, really cold ocean water, in which case you're going to start to form ice in the ocean as well. Right. So... Heavy oxygen isotopes equals cold. That's what we tell everybody. (laughs) All right, so we see these oxygen isotope ratios getting heavier Uh as we're going in. But so what are some of the triggers that we think there could have been to start this downfall in temperature? So you've already sort of said one of them, and that is that during this time, we were doing a lot of orogeny across the world. No, that doesn't have to get bleeped out. It means mountain building. Right. (laughs) So as you build up all these mountains, so it's not just the Rocky Mountains, and that sort of goes into the the late Cretaceous through the Eocene. So we're building those guys. 
We've already built stuff like the Appalachians. They're already old by now. Um, but the other big one that we're building is the Himalayas. So both the Rockies and the Himalayas still growing today, right? Yes. Right. So we're still in an active orogenic period in there. And what does that have to do with cooling climate? Well, it turns out if you uplift all these large amounts of mass, so you've got all these continent, continental land masses that are being uplifted. So not only do you now have higher elevations so you can grow glaciers, that's not all the story. The big part of the story is that as you start to weather these continental rocks, which are full of silicates, it actually acts to sequester CO2. So we're pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere, reducing the greenhouse effect. Exactly right. So lots of orogeny. You can start to scrub the CO2 out of the atmosphere. You bury all this CO2. Because you're weathering all these rocks, the CO2 gets trapped in new rocks, essentially. Um, this is one reason why. There's also another reason. Uh, called the Blag Hypothesis, which it's called the Blag because that's the initials of the authors that first came up with this, which I think is crazy. I don't know of another thing that we do like this. So how lucky are these guys? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that has to do with the other thing that was happening, if we talk about world geography, during the beginning of the Cenozoic, which is very active mid-ocean ridge spreading. So what do you think we look like during the beginning of the Cenozoic? Well, let's see. So during the beginning of the Cenozoic, we're probably sort of recognizable, but if I remember right, Greenland was still sort of conjoined. Uh, <laughs> conjoined? That sounds terrible. <laughs> so uh, North America was quite a bit closer to the equator, if I remember right, as well. Uh, we've actually trekked pretty far north by, um, by the Cenozoic. So towards the beginning of it, we were a lot closer, but... Fairly quickly, we get to where we are, but you're right. Greenland's conjoined <laughs> to North America still. And India begins to make its trek and then slams into Asia. But you're absolutely right. We were very recognizable by now. Okay, so Pangaea was our last supercontinent. We've rifted apart. And importantly, we have created the Atlantic Basin and the Pacific Basin as well. Okay, and these guys are driven by these mid-ocean ridges. So you got all this volcanic activity happening under the water, and we usually say volcanic activity causes a lot of CO2, but the thought is that these big spreading ridges that are here in the Pacific Rise and the Mid-Atlantic Ridge actually act to draw down CO2 because they're subducting rocks so quickly, carbonate rocks so quickly, so you're getting CO2 out of the system. Okay, so they're driving the spreading rates so high. Correct. All right. And, I mean, th this was very active tectonically. So this is, you know, sort of the time where the San Andreas Fault begins to become a thing okay. and start to become a mature fault zone. Uh, you already mentioned the Himalayas getting built as India was crashing into Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, there was quite a bit of tectonic activity, really. Right. And... and I say these things like these are the 100% reasons why we're sequestering CO2 and getting cooler, but these are absolutely not in, ha, in stone. 
<laughs> I think this uplift hypothesis seems like a pretty good source. This blag hypothesis, or a pretty good sink for CO2. This blag hypothesis, uh, because you're actually, if you create a lot of this volcanism, like we just said, you're actually adding a lot of CO2 to the system. So I think there's questions about, you know, what the balance is on this. And I don't think a lot of people like this as an explanation. Um, another thing that's changing, even though we're fairly recognizable, there's some minor differences that are actually quite important for climate. And that has to do with ocean circulation, because there's these things called ocean gateways. So how do you circulate? We talked a little bit this when we talked about Pangaea, but there are still some differences that act as, you know, blockages for ocean gateways, or most importantly, in Central America, you know, there was a big ocean gateway there because we hadn't closed the Isthmus of Panama, and so there's no North Atlantic current, just goes straight through, and that changes how climate works when you have large changes in the ocean circulation like that. Right, so you're effectively modifying how heat transport can happen. Exactly, yeah. Forward. Right, yeah. but how do you, even though the Cenozoic is not that long ago, how do you know? How do you get the timing on that? Right. <laughs> it's real hard. It's real hard. So basically, all this stuff is up in the air still. Like I, like we were talking about before the show, I find this comforting that we don't have all the answers, but I think lots of people find it disconcerting. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about all the time when we're looking at ice on Antarctica is the circumpolar current that goes around Antarctica. Right. And that only became a thing when the Drake Passage opened up, which was... You know, 20 million years ago, mm. round numbers. Mm -hmm. And so as we move forward through the Cenozoic, we'll talk about the difference between the words ice house and ice age, because what you're saying now has a has a bearing on that. <laughs> bearing straight, get it? I'm all over it today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, but this was, I mean, I think it's significant there because we had had ice on Antarctica for 10 million years at that point. Right, right, but... How do you grow it and all this weird things, right? And so do you, how do you get rid of it? And I think opening that up has a lot to do with keeping it cold down there, right? Right. And allowing that ice to grow, which is a big deal. Right. I mean, you get this nice cold circulation that's going around under the ice shelves or warm circulation, depends on who you're talking to in terms of whether you're modeling ice growth or, <laughs> yes, or ice now. sheet melting. Uh -huh. or, but you have relatively cold water yes. <laughs> circulating around uh, beneath the ice shelves protruding off Antarctica uh -huh. still to this day. Right. Correct. Yeah. And so um, that started fairly um, – well, no, that was, that was pretty early on in the Cenozoic, actually. Okay. So this Drake Passage opening up, it's just – it's really hard to help start to model those – how those global circulations, global ocean circulations affect – what's happening um so just as you said john we had antarctic ice a long time ago about 35 million years ago we didn't have northern hemisphere ice until really really recently both geologically well mostly geologically i guess only a couple million years right so two or three million years ago mm -hmm. uh and that's a big delta in there so <laughs> why was there you know, 20 plus or 30 plus really million years difference 
between ice forming in these two hemispheres. And it all goes back to the ocean. Exactly. So while it's difficult to pinpoint it, um, we do know what happens. And so what I was just talking about, the closing of the Isthmus of Panama, this is what did it, or this is what we think, <laughs> helped start, um, initiate this North American, or Northern Hemisphere glaciation. And it has to do with creating um, that Gulf Stream and the North Atlantic currents that go up. So how you transfer heat in the ocean, like you just said. So when you close the Isthmus of Panama, so now you've got North and South America are conjoined. (laughs) (laughs) And so you're forcing all this warm air, or sorry, warm water, even though air acts as a fluid, that's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) You're forcing all this warm water north. And what happens as it goes north is is a heat transfer mechanism. It starts to get really cold, right? And this cold water starts to sink. And you set up, not only is it cold, but what happens to the uh, saltiness in different temperatures of water? Yeah, so the salinity is going to change. The salinity in the warm water is going to be very salty and in the cold water, less salty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this sets up this big circul- circulation, that dense, less salty water. And you create this thermohaline circulation that we have in the ocean today. Um And we think that that happened to start this Gulf Stream carrying the salty Atlantic water north. It cools, it sinks. The high latitudes start to cool because of this cold water going up there, or because of cooling all this water. And you start to create sea ice that is isolated in the Arctic Ocean. And then it begins to spread. Right. And, you know, we talked about that you have the different temperatures and the different concentrations of salt. And I don't think a lot of folks realize, I didn't for a long time, about how drastically different, I mean, the ocean is not just seawater. There are definitely layers that have shockingly different conditions, uh, like those in the atmosphere even. In fact, in World War II, there were some inversions, just like we have in the atmosphere, of temperature and salinity that would reflect active sonar. So submarines could dive down below these and they were invisible because the sound was bouncing off an interface above them, just like it would uh, different densities in the atmosphere, which is what a sonar does, or different densities of rock like seismic methods do. Exactly. So you can see how important earth sciences is to, hey, military, um, you know, strategy. (laughs) Right. But it's just, it's amazing to me that what seems like a large, relatively homogeneous body of water yeah. is so stratified. <laughs> exactly. This is no surprise to anyone who saw the movie The Meg because that's exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> there was this salty, really hot layer <laughs> that The Meg was living under. I know It was very impressive, <laughs> which is funny because when I did watch that movie, that's exactly what it reminded me of because I was like, oh, like some of this is actually real, right? And then I told my son that, and then he got real scared that the Megalodon is still out there. But <laughs> <laughs> I digress. <laughs> Loosely based on science trivia. Uh, yes. That's the best, <laughs> best way to describe those it's movies. Exactly right. Um, so those ocean gateways, although we don't really have an absolute idea about rates of ice growing and what's the most important ingredient. I mean, we know that it started to happen, right? Right. So there you go. Um, and ever since, three million years ago or so, we've had this north northern hemisphere ice sheet that has grown. Um, 
in addition to these Antarctic ice sheets. And so once we started to make that Antarctic ice sheet, we were officially in what we would call an ice house. So we've got these continental ice sheets that put us in an ice house. But as you said earlier, something, there's a movie called Ice Age. So what's the difference? (laughs) Right. So Ice Age versus Ice House has to do with how much and how long. Right. Exactly. So Ice House, long-term, right? Glaciers shrink and grow. Ice Age, shorter term. Small. Everything's covered in ice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So small scale differences. We're in an interglacial right now, and you can actually break this down even further. I'm sure you know all these words working with the Antarctic ice people, right? So there's interstitial interglacials and stuff like this. Oh, yes. So (laughs) there's... (laughs) There's lots of, you know, just like the geologic time scale, you can break it down finer and finer and finer. Uh, but in in the broad view, is there ice on the earth? Yes, it's a nice house. <laughs> is there ice pretty much everywhere on the earth for a little while? Ice age. Right. So meaning continents and oceans, not right. snowball earth. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Um, okay. So that's where we are today. We're in this ice age. Right? In an ice house, in an ice age. But we also talk a lot about global warming and freak out about how we're changing the climate. And there are some, as I alluded to, I didn't allude, I said it, there are some analogies to what we're going through right now. And one of those things that happened in the early Cenozoic is this thing called the PETM, or the Paleocene-Eocene, that's the boundary between um, a couple of time periods there. The Paleo-Eocene Thermal Maximum. And if you're looking, you can Google this and follow along on any graph. They all look the exact same. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) About 55 million years ago is roughly the Paleo-Eocene boundary. Right after that, we had this thing called the PETM. And it's this huge spike, and we know this. It's this huge spike in temperature because the... Del 018, our good friend oxygen isotopes, got abruptly lighter. And by a lot. We're talking like, oh, maybe three or four degrees C. And it, it didn't last very long. You know, it was very short in terms of geologic time scale. But during this PETM, the reason why it's so interesting is because there was no ice here. Okay, this is sort of we were already coming out of the hothouse. It was still warm, but this was a spike into super warm again. But the deal is it's a spike. So the rate at which we increase global temperature was super fast, faster than anything we'd seen before. So going into the Cretaceous hothouse, it was kind of a gradual ramp up. Lots of things had time to react biologically speaking to the changing climate but the PETM was so abrupt that it really messed some stuff up like there was some extinctions there of these lots of um, biota ocean biota that couldn't immediately react to these temperature changes but it's a really great analog for what's happening now because our CO2 is spiking at a rate that's basically unprecedented and so with the PETM same thing happened you're right so you know, you say that it is a short interval, and that's true in geologic time. So the spike beginning to end is about 170,000 years. Okay. And over that time, the temperature at the seafloor 
rose by, we think, somewhere in the neighborhood of four to eight Celsius. Yeah. So if you think about that, okay, let's let's be pessimistic here and say, mm-hmm. okay, it was close to 10 degrees over, oh, I don't know, 50-odd thousand years. Mm-hmm. That caused extinctions. Yeah. <laughs> that is much slower than the rate we are talking about the climate currently changing at. That is absolutely true. <laughs> so when, when you scale it and you say this was a really fast, big excursion, it you know, the human said, hold my beer. Oh, <laughs> uh, so true. <laughs> did you do this math? We actually had a student that did this math in uh, her presentation in, the, in our class that we had, our Earth's Past Climate class, and it was kind of ridiculous. Uh, so I was doing it in my my head roughly. So let's see here. Let me actually punch some numbers in. Uh, yeah, so we're looking at like almost a ten thousandth of a degree a year. Right. Being significant. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it's not a perfect analog. <laughs> Right. Compared to what we're doing right now, it's very slow. But it's also really scary because we had extinctions at that slow rate, which is really fast geologically, right? So what are we doing to Earth now? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it's called, it's not, it doesn't qualify as a large mass extinction, which what we're doing now is being called the sixth mass extinction Um I've seen it written as this intense perturbation on the global biosystem, right? Right. Um, But at this time, we did have a big turnover of mammals, too, which in the end, we'll talk about these things called terror birds, but they're real fun. We'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I find fascinating, so we were able to see this because it's recent in Uh terms of millions of years ago. It's, you know, less than 20 million years ago. Uh Mm-hmm. How many similar events like this have happened in the past that we just don't have the resolution to see? Man, that is exactly what I think all the time. I think it's very disappointing that geologists don't speak like that. You know, we're like, this is the only time something like this has happened. There's no way. There's no way. (laughs) Right? No, it's that this is the only thing that's recent enough that all evidence hasn't been erased. Exactly. Like, yeah, that's... I think you have to be careful about that when you're talking about deep time climate is, you know, this resolution thing's a real big problem. Right. So you're looking at an ice core to get some of this, you know, Dell 18O information, Uh let's say. Uh That's, that's great. There have been times with no ice on the earth. So all of that information of any of these (laughs) is gone. Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Or if you're looking in the rock record, if you can find something relevant, it's so tiny, it's irresolvable. Exactly. So it's not... You know, correct. So because these rocks are so young, we've got a really good record that we recorded this. It's also disturbing to think that there might be a lot of these hanging around, though. Yeah, and who says this is the largest or the fastest? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. It's statistically unlikely, I would say. Yes, but like you said, hold my beer. and. Uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what caused it? What happened? I mean, it it did happen. We've got a record of this one. So what did it? And just like everything, there's probably a lot of answers. 
Well, let's see. If we go through the standard what caused it geologic bingo game, uh, <laughs> we have an impact event mm-hmm. yeah, being one. Always a good one, yeah. Uh, orbital parameter change could be one, but it's pretty fast for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I know that there's some talk about a so-called clathrate gun hypothesis. Yes. yes uh, that's like an intriguing one. one. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, it is. Also one that I think is more or less not favored anymore. The clathrate one? Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of math that goes along with that one that I think has kind of put that one out of the running, but it's still very interesting. Right, so I guess let's start there because I like clathrates. So <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, so clathrates are storing a lot of carbon. You know, They're storing methane, they're storing CO2, they're storing all these things mm-hmm. in the ocean in a solid form. Right, so this is like... This is what we call this. These, they're real weird. If you see pictures of ice on fire, that's a clathrate. Right. So it's it's very very similar to ice in physical properties. Uh, the molecular structure is such that a gas molecule is trapped in between a cage of water molecules in the solid form. Uh huh. So hence, you know, you've got methane inside this thing, so you can light it, light the ice on fire, right? Exactly. And these are all over the world under the oceans. Yeah, now, not just then. Yeah. Uh So one way that you could get a massive infusion of carbon to the atmosphere to bump the temperature is you hit a melting point of this clathrate and it goes poof (laughs) out of the seafloor and releases all this gas into the atmosphere in a very short period of time. Right, and so how do you do that? You start to warm stuff up, and you can do it. You could also shake some loose. I mean, there's talk about, are there seismic events that can do this? You know, did a big impactor release a whole bunch of them? Not enough for that to be the only reason. You get a large, some kind of, uh, you know, turbidity flow due to something that changes the environment, maybe changes the temperature or pressure environment of the class rate, and they melt. One of the issues here, though, is as clathrate melts, much like ice, uh, it is going to be an endothermic reaction and try to buffer itself. Okay. So as you melt it, it's going to get colder. It's, you know, ice buffers things at zero C as it's melting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so that's one of the problems. And then as you said, there's also a lot of math that says that maybe this wasn't the right amount of source over the right time. Right. Exactly. Um I really, <laughs> I really like the whole prescribing to a whole bunch of other things, you know, came together to do this in science. I think that's probably more likely than anyone smoking clathrate gun, right? Right. <laughs> um, but the clathrates are real fun to talk about, which I think is why they've hold on for so long. <laughs> it, it's true. And, you know, not only do we see the change uh, in the, uh, the oxygen isotopes, but we also see a large carbon isotope excursion. Some people are saying, well, maybe we can trace some of that back to clathrates. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. exactly. And I mean, this isn't insignificant. So we're making it sound like, oh, there's just not enough. I mean, the amount of gas in clathrates worldwide exceeds our volume of known conventional gas resources. Okay, so right. there's a lot. <laughs> so if it's not clathrates, what was it? 
Or what do we think it was? We don't what are some of the other man. players? <laughs> I just told you. Um, volcanoes are always, always, always invoked, right? Right. Um, and why would we think that? Well, during that time period, we have a lot of volcanic plastic layers. So things that came out of large erupting volcanoes like tephras and tufts um, that were around then. And this also goes along with that whole, we also saw light carbon in addition, and maybe that was it. But again, that volcanic carbon, primarily the form of CO2, doesn't actually have a carbon signature that's light enough to explain that light isotopic CO2 excursion. Um, But there was really intense volcanic activity at this time. All right. And that could have been one of those things that tipped this methane hydrates all these clathrates into melting. So why volcanoes alone can't, you know, account for it. Like I just said, maybe it's a bunch of things. Maybe they were, there was enough volcanoes that it tipped these methane clathrates into going and it was a combination of them both. Right. And there are other contributing factors that have been hypothesized, such as uh, burning peat. Right. Um, I love this. Um, I don't know if you've ever been around burning peat. Have you? It's really interesting. I, I have not. Um, yeah. So a lot of my field workers in the highlands of Scotland and you go to these hotels and you see out these peat bogs everywhere. Right. And people like whiskey, you know, peaty whiskey and all this stuff. Um, and this is what they do. They just like harvest these chunks of peat and that's what's burning in fireplaces and stuff. It's the weirdest thing to see like these roll, rolled up pieces of sod on fire everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, that could be a carbon source. It's okay. sort of unclear why there then that might have happened, but right. it's a potential carbon source. I mean, a, a impact could have set it on fire, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so it's this light carbon that's kind of the a big question, too. It's like, you know, where did this come from? Um, and so changes in the biosphere is a big deal. You can get into very specific um, ways that carbon is created in the ocean and maybe changes in land vegetation because these all have to do with lighter carbon isotopes, um, had something to do with it. Or maybe it's all of these things. Who knows? And it's, it's very likely some strange nonlinear combination. Absolutely. I think that is absolutely correct. <laughs> but that's why we're really interested in that time period too, though, is that all these things were happening absent driving a bunch of cars and burning fossil fuels at a crazy rate. So that, that wasn't part of it <laughs> like right. it is now. Uh, yeah, but all this stuff did come together in a very unfortunate um, an unfortunate combination that created a lot of um, perturbations and killed a lot of creatures at this time. Right. And so one utility of something like this is it's recent enough, we have enough data that it gives us something to benchmark some of our climate models against. Right. Exactly. Because that idea of tipping points, I think, is a big deal because that's the scary unknown. Like, how far can you go before it's irreversible? Right? So. Oh, yeah. 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 That You'll hear that a lot when people talk about global warming. You know, what if this is the tipping point? 
Um, and that's what's really scary, right? Right. So how well do our models do at capturing when these positive feedback loops start up? Exactly. Uh, so we're, we're melting more ice, we're changing albedo, we're releasing or sinking carbon. When do all of these things come together in the appropriate combination that the climate is just going to get warmer and warmer and warmer and warmer until there's a catastrophic event that I, changes it again in geologic time? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's something to take away of all the arguments about global warming and whatever. Like we're in the coldest point that we've been in a long time. And in if you look over Earth's history, which I'm sure I've already said this on one of these climate shows that we've done, you know, the majority of Earth's history is a greenhouse Earth, not an ice house Earth. We're actually, even though this is the time we know, and so because we're people and self-centered like this, we think, oh, well, this is how it's always been. Actually, Earth in this ice house climate is quite anomalous compared to all of Earth history. Okay, so even though this is our normal, it is not the normal state for the Earth. So is Earth going to survive? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No matter what we do to it, short of blowing up the core, <laughs> right, <laughs> it's going to survive. That's not a question. But is that is that what the argument's about? You know what I mean? Like, do you want to well, argue? I don't the know. bigger question is, are people going to survive? Exactly. <laughs> there have been multiple mass extinction events, as you mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we could very easily be one of those. Uh, correct. Yeah. So like at the end of the Permian, we talked about the great dying, you know, 96% of all life died. Okay. And so it's, it's a big deal. Do we want to make it out of this? And so if so, then yeah, we need to think about this because for all the reasons we just mentioned, these tipping points and this, you know, weird combination of things that are happening is that going to be enough to force us back into an ice house where the earth into a hot house where the earth is comfortable? No big deal. But are we going to be comfortable? Is our food source going to be comfortable? You know, what does this mean for plants? Stuff like this, which as we end this, I do want to talk about the weird animals that were in the Eocene. <laughs> right. But before, before we get to the animals, I just want to hammer home again that, so some models say that we may have already hit a tipping point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Others say that we're maybe not there, but we're really close. This isn't something that we as a society can wait Correct. to take action on. Correct. Because once we hit the tipping point, it's game over. Right. Yeah, there's no control Z on that stuff. So, uh, yeah. And yes, the earth does not care. It's a ball of rock. Yeah. Yeah. It's... It <laughs> might have life on it, might not at some point. It doesn't really matter to the ball of rock. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, and just like you said, you know, some models have already said we've hit this tipping point. So that's the importance of understanding it. There's not a lot of contention in the scientific community that this is a big deal that we should be looking at. You know, most scientists think that. It's how you frame your argument. Do we want to keep our way of life like it is now? Because we're already beyond that. You know, like, I don't know if my kids are going to see polar bears when they're in their, you know, late 50s. Probably not. Right. Right. They're probably gone. So stuff like this, you know, you got to think about that stuff's happening really quick. We've talked to a lot of Arctic and Antarctic science scientists that have said that, you know, that's, that's where stuff's really getting weird. And man, I love talking to, I mean, I love, it's really scary, but it's very interesting to talk to people just a little bit older than us and have them talk about the changes that they've 
noticed in the climate just since they were little, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's really strange. Like, we we talk about it here all the time, you know, in Oklahoma, but when we go back to Iowa and we talk to family and how they talk about changes in, like, the crop cycles and stuff like that. So this is very noticeable, not on a geologic timescale, on a human timescale. Yes. So now to move on to something that's a little bit lighter, <laughs> what were some of the funny mammals running around? Like the carbon? Is that where you were going with that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's really hard to get... I, I always end my classes on climate change, and it always feels really depressing, right? Because it is. It is really depressing, and it gets real morose. <laughs> so what I tried to do to lighten this up a little bit... But also, this is one of the things that happened during the Cenozoic is that as the climate changed from this hothouse where there's no ice at all, and then um, we started to glaciate Antarctica, and then we started to glaciate the Northern Hemisphere, it really changed how, what the animals look like, right? And (laughs) so we killed the dinosaurs with volcanoes and meteorites. And then we had all these land mammals that flourished. And please, I know I've in, I've wanted people to do this, but please go and look at these this artwork. <laughs> like, if you look at Cenozoic mammal artwork, it's just great. These things are terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> There's these little adorable things that are cute little mammals. They kind of look like cats. They kind of look like weasels. They have massive fangs. They kill crocodiles. <laughs> like... And, okay, so let's, again, roll this back to a little bit more serious note of not only these funny-looking things, but none of the mammals that were alive during this recent geologic time are still alive. Yeah. Yep, that's absolutely true. None. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) And that's, like, Ice Age scale stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we don't have woolly mammoths, nothing like that. Um, Definitely during the beginning of the Cenozoic, you had tropical paradise in the northern hemispheres, right? And so not very long ago, and now what do you have, you know? Um, so, yes, yes, they don't, they don't exist very long or anymore. But one thing that we're really glad doesn't exist anymore yes. are, are these things <laughs> called terror birds. <laughs> Leave it to you to find I a know. strange bird. <laughs> My students went crazy for this. I was like, how can I spice this? And and this is exactly what happened. How can I spice this really depressing lecture up? Okay. You know, like you can talk about deep time climate all you want. Okay, great. This stuff hits a little closer to home. So it becomes a little more real, a little more depressing. And I found these things. And so this is what came directly after the dinosaurs were these things called terror birds. And I want everyone to take a minute and Google terror birds. (laughs) Especially, look for the article, The Menacing Reign of the Terror Birds. <laughs> How scary are they? <laughs> so it shows them taking on uh, what looks like a saber-toothed tiger, maybe? <laughs> uh, in one of these pictures, they look like they're probably significantly taller than you or I, with little itty-bitty wings and giant bird beaks. Okay, so, yes, yes, that is true. Um, so these terror birds, um, the pictures I have in my... <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. It's real funny. They're like killing these zebra things, right? Um, So terror birds are these huge birds. They're what came after the dinosaurs. But also tectonics is what killed them, which is really interesting. 
<laughs> because they're eating these things, not saber-toothed tigers in this one. It's like some weird zebra donkey looking thing, right? Um, and these are really prevalent in South America. So when did we say North and South America joined? Not until like three million years ago. All right. And actually how these animals migrated were the end of the terror birds, essentially. <laughs> because when the, we closed all that off um, and they started to migrate back and forth, these ungulates that they mostly fed on and lived throughout South America had different things that preyed on them here in North America. And so in North America, we had these huge mammals, right? These big short-nosed bears and ground sloths and all this stuff. Um, and they couldn't compete with these other very large mammals in North America for food. And so that was it for the terror birds. Though, if you do want to remember the terror birds, I will put a link in the show notes uh, to the wonderful prehistoric birds terror bird unique outdoor shoulders bag fabric backpack multi-purpose day pack for adult on Amazon. Yes, you can get a backpack that has a terror bird on the back are from you, Amazon. Are you serious? Oh man, I'm real sad I didn't see that. But I did see that there's a movie called Terror Birds in 2006 with two stars on IMDb. Yes. <laughs> Which I'm real upset about. I feel like that, just because of what it's about, should rate at least four stars. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say it until you've seen the effects. Mm, that's true. <laughs> this could be real bad. You're absolutely right. Isn't this impressive? Have you ever heard of these things? Uh, just from you. <laughs> Of course, because I'm an evangelist now for terror birds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, like, North American camels killed them, basically. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's real neat. You can get sucked into for a long time how they killed stuff. Did they bang it with their beaks? Did they bite it? Did they stomp it? Looks like they stomped it or just hit it with their heads, which I think is real funny, too. <laughs> you two kids can be a paleontologist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, on that note, <laughs> that's the highlight of the Cenozoic for me is terror birds, and that's what I try to think about instead of rates of CO2 increase. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so, to move on to something entirely different, sort of. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Fun Paper Friday. Yay, the cowbell is back. The cowbell is back. Uh, so... <laughs> I guess in the vein of terror birds, uh, yeah. you found this wonderful paper called <laughs> Mythical Creatures of Europe. <laughs> I wanted to follow up on the Highland Haggis paper because I had so much fun reading it <laughs> <laughs> that I found a GIS paper. This one's a legit paper, not like last time, <laughs> but it's amazing. And you absolutely have to look at the um, all the supplemental material here. Um, but essentially... Uh, this paper, which was published in the Journal of Maps, which I don't know why I don't subscribe to this journal, right? <laughs> um, it's true. Yeah. Uh, and I see you've left me to try to pronounce these author names. <laughs> I did. <laughs> oh, oh, I can't even do it. Um, these are Lithuanian names that I don't know. <laughs> Bikant yet? So, maybe? That's all? That, that's a good guess. Okay. <laughs> So in this paper, which was published in 2013 and is open access, they said, well, you know, we don't have a map of where 
all of these mythical creatures from different legends live. And this could be interesting uh, from a social studies standpoint, really. Right, exactly. Um, this is cultural geography at its finest um, because they have a whole lot of parameters for what what mean mythical creatures mean, right? And so this is a great melding of cultural geography and just simple cartography, like GIS visualization of this. Plus, they had some amazingly talented artists help them, but we'll get to that. Yes. So uh, one thing that I wanted to point out is that they limited their study area because doing the entire world would be a massive undertaking. Yeah. Uh, So they ended up uh, narrowing it down to 213 mythical creatures of 68 types, which we'll get to the types (laughs) in a little bit. And even doing that took about 1,200 man hours, which looking that up, that's... Uh, about 30 working weeks of labor. Yeah, that's unbelievable. It's actually unbelievable that it's that small <laughs> because this <Yeah>. is impressive. <laughs> because what they did, and this is so cool, um, this is where the cultural geography part of it comes in, is to make these types, you know, they had to go in and they had rules for how these were. So they wanted to develop these typologies for geographic, non geographic characteristics of mythical creatures. They had to obviously get a schema of all these and put into a geographic database. But to do that, they had to go in and collect this information, not just information, but reliable information of these known mythical creatures throughout Europe. And how do you plot them then? And so they said that they looked at published sources in many different languages, the Lithuanian, Czech, English, German, Latvian, Poland, Russian, Spanish, and Ukrainian languages um, to pinpoint some of these mythical creatures which i think is amazing yes (laughs) a lot of work yes (laughs) yeah exactly um and like you said they had to create this target area because there's a whole bunch of things but i will um they had to (laughs) then once they found all these things like what do you want to include do you want to include something that's only mentioned a couple times do you want to include something that's known everywhere like it doesn't have a home base so they got rid of those things that were only mentioned once or twice they got rid of i love this they got rid of fictional characters (laughs) like none of these are fictional great (laughs) i love it um they don't do stuff that's very general like spook or devil they have to be very indigenous to a location they can't be divine uh-huh. They can't. And uh, <laughs> one of my favorites from this yeah. list is it can't be a being created for a purpose. For example, a boogeyman invented by parents to frighten children to compliant <laughs> behavior. That's crap. Those are very powerful. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the words that I said out loud at my son's Boy Scout meeting when I was reading this, because I love to say it, I said, oh, no golems or homunculi. <laughs> Which... <laughs> Some parent looked at me and I was like, yep, humunculi. (laughs) So none of those things. These had to be real mythical creatures. (laughs) Exactly. And Uh, given that they're, you know, only mentioned, or they have to be mentioned multiple places, I was sad this means that characters like, you know, Tim the Enchanter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> won't be included though they would be geographically excluded from the study oh uh, yeah that was that was really sad <laughs> i'll give you that <laughs> i do want to know more about this slavic dragon he's mentioned a whole lot <laughs> yes <laughs> so 
to do this like any good scientist would do, uh, they came up with a database schema and yep. <laughs> had a bunch of linked tables. So things like environment, disposition, uh, the creature, the subtype, the type, location, uh, even a rating for vagueness of location. So when you look at this table, I mean, there are probably 50 or so things that are rated for each of these 200 and change creatures. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is legit. <laughs> right? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I mean, really legit. And I love that this is all open so we can just keep adding to it because this is amazing. <laughs> um, they're creatures. Oh, it's just so cool. I'm real obsessed with this stuff anyway, so I was real excited about this. Um, I do love their little... One of the things they talk about is the mythical creature's disposition towards people. That's one of right. the schema. I love it. <laughs> Were they malicious, benevolent, ambivalent, neutral? So it turns out about 40% were malicious, 12% were nice to us, 10% didn't care. Uh, and so I, I was a little unclear on the difference between ambivalent and neutral. I was too. So the example of an ambivalent would be which, and I think that means they go both ways. Ah, uh, okay. So like they act one way or the other. Whereas neutral, like a banshee, who I thought would have been malevolent, Clearly, I don't know the real story of Banshees, um, is a neutral character. That's what I, that's what I gather from this. Right. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they put all this into the database, including, you know, where do they live, which was largely unknown, uh, followed mm -hmm. up by sea, air, and caves, and moors and swamps. Yeah. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and we can't forget, you know, what types of creatures, because that's really the cool thing. So zoomorphic creatures, what are they shaped like? Uh, Human-animal hybrids. And then anthropomorphic creatures, so roughly humanoid. Um, and then dragons get their own category. <laughs> <laughs> right, so anthropomorphic, zoomorphic, human-animal hybrid, hybrid animal, or oh. other. Yep. Oh. Um, and so when you go to the map, <laughs> this is amazing. This map is amazing. I mean, the artwork is what makes it amazing, which they actually said was one of their aims, was to create something artistic that you would want to hang on the wall. And it is... It, so they created the base of the map in ArcGIS, the GIS tool, and then used Illustrator and some other things to really dress it up, add some fancy legends and that kind of thing. It's, like you said, absolutely gorgeous. Oh. Yeah, and I get real excited looking at these things like the Gorgon and stuff, and I think about, you know, where I've encountered these. And this, this goes, obviously, this is very close to my native science heart, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to point out the magic goat. I don't know if you saw him. Looks just like a goat. I don't know what he's about, <laughs> <laughs> but I really like him. <laughs> and all these are categorized. Not only are there pictures on the map, um, but they have index numbers, so you can look on the actual map, you know, what is its name, and whether it is neutral, malevolent, friendly, which is likely not, or ambivalent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I haven't, I haven't found Magic Goat, but I really so hope he's friendly. <laughs> the other thing that they produced from this paper, not only the map, uh, but something that I would love to see with some more scientific papers as well, is a cartoon abstract. 
Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a little, you, know, you could print it out on a single sheet of paper, uh, sort of hand-drawn PhD comic style abstract that has each of the elements of their methods and their conclusions shown in sort of a a generalized form. Like you see pie charts, but they don't have the percentages on them. They're just, well, you can see that there's a lot more malicious anthropomorphic things. Mm -hmm. I actually had to... Oh, go ahead. Oh, and they've got some numbers of like how many creatures that they looked at and some of the the types. It's And at the top, it says mapping mapping the mythical creatures of Europe. An article in the Journal of Maps has mapped 213 mythical creatures of 68 types as described in European folklore. Just the title of the cartoon abstract tells you more about the paper than most complete abstracts do about their contents. It's so true. <laughs> it's so true. I actually had to look because this is a very PhD comic style. I was like, oh, Jorge Cham did a thing on this. <laughs> Um, but it's not it's the authors and it's so cool and they even have a little illustrated cartoon of the journal of maps down at the bottom they do (laughs) but i mean to read the whole article yeah this is so cool because obviously there's vampires in here um there's baba yaga that's real scary (laughs) there's lots (laughs) of goats there's already two magical goats on this cartoon abstract (laughs) so yeah i don't i don't know who your favorite (laughs) scary mythical creatures are john i feel like you don't love them as much as i do <laughs> uh no i don't <laughs> don't delve into that realm yeah as much yeah i'm the i'm the bigger D nerd obviously so <laughs> yes there's a killer uh, snail on here john a killer snail <laughs> <laughs> yeah it says an atrocious subterranean mollusk-like creature <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah, so you should totally check this out. Open access, like we said, this map is amazing. I totally want to hang it up on the wall. Yes, and you can tell us what your favorite mythical creature from this map was, or if you have any uh, hypotheses on why there is a strange concentration of evil creatures (laughs) in the Balkan region, as they call out in this paper. We would love to hear them. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? Uh, you can email us that show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, tweet us your favorite mythical creature at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I would love it if we could talk about this on the Slack chat room. So come find us, the Software Underground or the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.